We stopped in Kamloops on the way, and on the way to Prince George from Kamloops, we did hit a bit of snow, fog, and it was dark, and there's a lot of aggressive um, transport trucks. <laughs> the person who braved the transport truck drivers and the long drive to Clayton-Lee territory, also known as Prince George, is Machif interdisciplinary artist Amanda Strong. She is the owner, director, and producer of Spotted Fawn Productions, a stop-motion animation studio based in the Lower Mainland of BC. Amanda and her partner have been spending a lot of time at their home base on the Sunshine Coast, and this outing in October was the first in a long while. Yeah, we've been kind of taking the pandemic and the quarantine pretty serious. This is actually one of the first times that we've left home base. since March. The reason for Amanda coming to Prince George was for the installation and opening of her solo exhibition, Isco Chesa, Little Fires, at Two Rivers Gallery. The exhibition has a lot of components. In fact, it's the largest exhibition of Spotted Fawn's stop-motion sets ever to be produced. With so many sets, Amanda came to help in the final days of the install process. It was a busy time, but she and her partner did manage to explore the city a bit. Yeah, we went to Nancy O's. <laughs> we bought the t-shirt merch in support. A little memory from here when we go back. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Tracing Lines, a podcast produced by Two Rivers Gallery, where we talk to artists about their work, process, and ideas. I'm Megan Hunter-Gotzier, the assistant curator at Two Rivers Gallery speaking to you from the traditional territory of the Clayton Tanay, also known as Prince George, BC. In this episode, you'll hear an interview that myself and our Indigenous programmer, Yashnau, did with Amanda the day after Isco Chesa Little Fires opened to the public. You'll learn more about Amanda's trajectory as an artist and the birth of Spotted Fawn Productions. We'll touch on some of the films in this exhibition, discuss Amanda's inclusion of gender binary characters in her work, learn how collaboration is a key part of her practice, and hear about some of the challenges and rewards that come with being the owner, director, and producer of a production company. All right, let's get started. I'm here with Yash now, Two Rivers Gallery's Indigenous programmer, to interview artist Amanda Strong. Yash now, thanks so much for joining us today. And Amanda, I'm so glad that we have the opportunity to chat with you for this podcast. Thank you for having me. And I'm so excited to be here. Howell, Megan, for inviting me to be a part of this. So, Amanda, to start, we would love to know more about you and where you come from. All right. Uh... Well, I was born in Mississauga, Ontario, uh, and I grew up there for a good chunk of my life, and that's just outside of Toronto area. And my grandmother comes from St. Boniface in Manitoba, which is sort of in the Red River area, and that's where our Indigenous uh, lineage comes from, and a lot of her family is uh, Métis, or what I also um, identify as Michif, and our kind of nationhoods come from the Cree, uh, Nakoda, Chippewa, uh, sort of in the Manitoba, 
North Dakota, Minnesota area. So they come a lot from the state side and would often cross what wasn't a border at that time um, for the buffalo hunt. So many people from some of those communities ended up in the Red River settlement area. And that's sort of yeah, where my grandma came from. Um, but she moved to Toronto when she was married very young. And that's sort of where I was raised. And when I was outside of, when I finished school, I didn't really feel ultra connected to Toronto. Like I really love visiting it. My family's still there, um, but I've sort of, I guess, traveled and moved around. I went, ended up in Montreal for a bit. And then most recently in the last uh, eight years, I would say, I have been an uninvited guest on the unceded Coast Salish territories of the Squamish, um, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. And currently, um, Gibsons, BC, which is outside of Vancouver, is on Squamish territory. So that's where I'm living and operating Spotted Fawn Productions at this time. Um, and yeah, my, my dad's family is, I, I didn't really meet my dad's family as his parents died when I was very young, um, as well as my mom's dad. But I have Polish, uh, Irish, and Scottish blood as well. Thanks for sharing that. We'd really love to know what drew you towards stop-motion animation as a medium and using this medium as an avenue to share Indigenous stories, knowledge, and history. Well, my actually, when my mom's dad died, um, I was not really into the arts at that time. I was in high school and... I was going down a path of athletics, <laughs> believe it or not. I was going to be a kinesiologist. I had all my schooling all lined up. And when he passed, I found all of his old cameras. Um, and something just gravitated me towards that. And I grabbed them. And he actually had all these really beautiful photos of my grandmother when she was younger and when they were married. And all these negatives and medium format stuff. And again, it, it, I don't think I was necessarily like thinking of anything at that time, but something just told me to kind of grab those items and keep them. And that was a massive shift in my life where almost immediately I switched uh, course of action. I, I went into photography in the end of high school and then decided to study photography in post-secondary. And I know everyone around me was shocked. Um, at the time, my father lived in the States and even flew <laughs> to, to Toronto to have a talk with me about this choice I was making, um, shifting from sort of, I guess, a more stable career in their opinion, but moving towards something artistic where I didn't have any scholarships and it was going to cost a lot of money. So there was a lot of, I guess, hesitation around this choice and how random it was. Um, but that's sort of, I guess, what started my journey. And I just fell in love. And I think as I was studying, I then actually went into illustration degree at Sheridan College after my photography program. And I got rejected from the film program, funny enough. And um, they actually asked me to, like, I guess, submit after I finished making some films. And I told them, I'm good. Thank you. I already applied and you rejected me. So it was a very interesting path because in a way I didn't feel encouraged towards moving image when I did get rejected in school. Um, but it's just something that I, I sort of came across as I was in illustration, actually, 
where I was still using a lot of photography as an influence in my illustrations. And I think just through both of those programs, I realized I didn't just want to be a photographer or I didn't just want to be an illustrator, but I had a bigger, I guess, picture or um, interest in mind of w- what happens when these still images or stories in a still image move. It's just something I fell in love with and had a lot of mentors throughout kind of leaving school that really inspired and pushed me to, I guess, go in this way and learn. And in my one of my first stop motion pieces, I kind of knew it was like, this really crazy world that you have to sacrifice a lot to fully commit to it. And I knew it was either I would never do it again, or I would be doing it probably for the rest of my life. So it was a split road and and here I am. That is beautiful. Hawa for sharing that part of your story. Thank you. In continuation of when you were were talking about your dad and your family, your history and these elements that brought you to where you are. Your Michith name translates to Spotted Fawn, which is also the name you have given your Indigenous-led production company. How do you say Spotted Fawn, your name in, in mischief? Um, actually, I believe when I was given my name, I was with my grandmother and it was a, a, a Métis or Michif, um event, but the elder was... Uh, Anishinaabe. So to my knowledge, um, I believe the the way I was given it was in Anishinaabe or Ojibwe. And it's Gidigakuns is the um, way I was told. And that means um, like little deer with spots or spotted fawn. And it was in a, a sacred ceremony and was given sort of a, a list of what that meant. And certain teachings and unfortunately that elder passed away not long after because I was very excited to learn more about it and that name always stuck with me I believe I got it like when I was around 13 or 14 and obviously it was really special to have had that with experience with my grandmother who is sort of the center of my world and I didn't obviously know what it meant, it, you know, I've thought about it so many times because there's like this connotation that it's not weak, but it's kind of fragile. And, um, you know, when he was describing it at the fire, it was like, you know, they they use those spots to hide and to camouflage from danger. And it's a very like gentle thing, um, uh, I guess, where, but they have this ability, I guess, to adapt or camouflage to their environment. Um, and yeah, I guess I've always felt really proud to have that name and I love that name. And so I have a strong affinity with, with deer, especially fawns. And anytime I see them, uh, you can ask anyone around me, my heart lights up and kind of get really giddy in a, in a funny way. Um, cause they're just so special to me, I guess. And even like I've met uh, in a canoe trip I did, I met some hunters in Manitoba and they're like, we're going to go shoot some, you know, hunt some deer. And I was like, no, you can't hunt deer. And I was like, so like, like heartbroken by the idea of hurting a deer. And I saw them uh, in Batash a few months later at the end of our canoe journey. And he's like, hey, you, 
I saw I was hunting one day and I saw a big buck and I was ready to shoot it and then your little voice came into my head and I I couldn't do it. <laughs> so you just mad at me. Um, but yeah, so I, I, there's definitely like a strong affinity with um, that identity and I guess being named that. And when I started my company about ten years ago, it was I guess just made sense to go that way. I wanted it to be something personal and meaningful uh, to me and it just felt right. So we started, I started Spotted Fawn Productions 10 years ago. And the, I guess the premise of it was a, you know, it was a place to, to make art and stories from an indigenous perspective. Thanks so much for sharing that, Amanda. To circle back to the exhibition, the exhibition Escochesa, Little Fires, features four films, How to Steal a Canoe, Four Faces of the Moon, Badabin, The Dawn Comes, and Flood. So along with props relating to those films, this is what occupies both galleries. And before we jump into talking about those works a little bit deeper, I'd like to hear a bit about your creative process and how you develop these kinds of films. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it's important to know like every film is a different experience and way of working and different collaborators. So I wouldn't say there's one way that things happen or that we create stories in the space. Um, Again, I think because they can take so long to make, it definitely things can change in that time again people can shift or you know people new people can be in the space or people may have transitioned out of the space so it's it's not um like i said a one-shot answer i think really at the center is connecting to the story like whether that's a seed that comes from me which I would say Four Faces of the Moon is is the best example. That's a very personal story that's about going into my grandmother's lineage and, um, you know, unearthing and reclaiming um, lost language and culture that hasn't been passed down uh, to my generation and even my mom's generation. Um, so that's a very personal story where that sort of came from my heart and took probably 12 years if you really break down me feeling like I wanted to tell a story about that identity. And I think, again, when I first wanted to explore that, I was very naive. And I mean, I think we're always naive. I don't think we ever know everything by any means. But I think over that time period, I learned a lot. And I think it was necessary to mature in a certain way to treat the story in a certain way. And even today, I would probably do it even differently because um, I think we continue to learn and grow as people. In um, something like How to Steal a Canoe, that's an existing song, essentially, from Leanne Simpson. So, you know, in that case, we're reacting to that where there's something so powerful and beautiful about that sonic and and lyrical poetic experience that we then get to react to visually um, and create something that comes to mind when hearing that track. And then for Badabin, it's a story of like an amalgamation of short stories from Leanne Simpson. There's, I think, three or four short stories from different um, short compilations that Leanne has wrote. And we actually approached Leanne to collaborate in writing with them to amalgamate some of these stories and concepts into 
um, a, a story which ended up becoming Badalbin. And then really, it's a, a whole different team that we work together to, I guess, create the worlds and characters that come out of any of these combinations of writings or song um, that we then go into that world. And if we're not dealing with a song or something that has pre-existing uh, sonic elements, then we then create those ourselves for the ones that don't have that. There's so many components that go into all of these different pieces and works. And on the topic of, of so many different elements, you're, you're the owner, director, and producer of Spotted Fawn Productions. That's definitely a lot of roles. What is your day-to-day -day like, and how do you balance all of these roles? Well, I have not figured that out yet. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely haven't figured out the balance part, but, you know, I'm getting older, and I see... Um, a bigger importance of finding balance in what can be very chaotic. Essentially, our studio, we try to run year round. And that's not always typical of production models, like often a production, whether it's an animation or a film, will have a production period, and then it collapses. So in our case, we're constantly having to juggle many things or productions that allow the studio to not have to close or collapse for a duration of time because to like kind of shut that down and pop that up again all the time is not sustainable and not something you could do or you would lose space. So it's, it's really tricky, I guess, to figure this out. I'm still learning. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not typically trained in business per se, but yeah, it's just, it's something I want to create like a permanent space where it can be this place where people can work and have work ongoing um, year round versus freelance sometimes. It's it's a lot and I won't lie, it's it's not always pretty and it's um, but it's the the reward is the work and the impact of the work and working with the most amazing people on all these projects and collaborators like that that's what keeps me going. Cause there's definitely days, probably almost every day where I doubt myself or I feel like it's time to give up or like, can I even continue to do this? It's so much pressure sometimes to maintain that and sustain that overhead of the space and all the people every month um, and try to still be find space to be creative. But it, it's also, again, that team that has helped me to not give up and the work itself and how honored I feel to be in a position of privilege to tell these stories in our own way and have access to funds um, through hard work, of course. Uh, but yeah, I guess it's it's really crazy. It's it, especially right now with COVID. That's been a massive ad adapting to having more people work from home and building sort of a, a database for like network of all of our files so that everybody can access those in one place. There's there's just been a lot, I would say, of more backend administration type work for me. I just know I have to kind of stay really humble and, you know, really lean on the supports around me because I have a lot of them and those are the things that really keep me going and just not ever wanting to give up. And 
really wanting to like honor when I start a story and all the many people who help on these stories, it's my responsibility to finish that story and to have it come into the world in some way. And and I think that's another big part of what keeps me going is if I collapse or if I stop or if I don't finish that in a way, I'm letting down so many loving hands that have contributed to these stories. So although you might feel like you don't have it figured out, I'm glad that you're still trying and that you're still putting so much into this work. Cause like you said, it, it is important work and we're very, very glad to have it at the gallery for sure. Jumping into the films themselves. We would like to dig into Badabin, The Dawn Comes. And so in this film, there are two main characters, Badabin, a young indigenous gender fluid person and Sabe, a ancient shapeshifter. So together they set out to harvest sap from sugar maples in their urban environment. Why was it important for you to include a gender fluid character in this film? I mean, the I've always personally felt, um, and I've never labeled myself, and this is something I think I'm talking more about now, because I, I didn't really grow up, I guess, around or in a time, I'm not sure which it was or if it was just where I grew up, but where that was talked about a lot. I mean, if anybody knows me, people would have literally thought I was a boy for most of my life. I mean, I've been teased a lot for that. I have two older brothers. I never wanted to be a girl. I've never really acted like a girl. I still feel feminine at days, but the the idea of kind of learning about what like non-binary or gender fluid means is is something that I definitely can relate to because I feel very, I guess, uh, well, fluid, I guess, or just I feel like both at times. So there's days where I don't feel like anything. There's days where I'm just like, I'm a, I'm a dude today. And, and there's actually days where I can feel feminine, more feminine. So it's, it's not really like a standard thing that stays the same. And it's not really something that's that important to me either in terms of like feeling like I have to conform to being what society thinks is a a woman or a female Um, so I've sort of always encompassed that like I do identify as she her but um, I think there's something about that is very important to me and that I can really relate to and in particular with Leanne's writing Leanne has that character in the story already who is non-binary And so that was really exciting for me to think about, um, you know, a a kind of rebellious, like they're not like a backdrop thing or it's not exploited in a a certain way. It's just that's just who they are. And actually, we based Bidabin off of uh, one of our friends who is uh, non-binary, Wes Harmon. And that was really important to me to base characters off of real people. The film really spoke to me in a lot of ways. I mean, being a transgender woman myself and seeing this queer, non-binary, gender-fluid character in the film engaging in cultural work, which is something that I've spent my life so far trying to do, it made me think about how queer and transgender people were and are considered important people, powerful people who hold powerful roles in many Indigenous societies across the land we now call Canada. And I'm curious as to the relevance between Bidavon's gender fluid identity and the cultural work, um, the sap collecting that they are doing with Sabe. I think in the story, a lot of like when talking with Leanne, 
like even in Leanne's mind, like all the characters are not a gender. And I think that's something that's really interesting. Like as I'm taking language courses and even my partners, nations, we often hear like there's no gender separation when you're learning language, like there's no male or female thing. And I, f- I find that really interesting that a lot of our languages are structured that way. And I think, yeah, like Sabe, to my knowledge, is, is also um, non-binary and even the animals for that matter, the ghost caribou and wolf. And that was something that I think I felt really excited by was not defining anything in this world by gender. So I guess in a way, I mean, yeah, I've never thought of the sort of direct connection to the sap collecting, but I think there's definitely a power that Badabin would have being non-binary. And I, so I, I appreciate you pointing that out and I'd love to think more about that, if that makes sense. And, and those relationships, because I think you've brought up a really beautiful point there. Fantastic. I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to have done that. It's something that has really occupied my mind while looking at the exhibition. And I love the, the, the idea the, of what you put forward of how even the animals don't have a gender. And in my culture, the Haida culture, it's a very similar thing. Raven is often portrayed as a boy for whatever reason in colonial translations of the story. But Raven is a genderless being alongside lots of other animals clearly a lot of symbolism and thought goes into these films. And looking at a different film, I'd like to talk about How to Steal a Canoe. This is all Leanne's um, poetry, so it's not doesn't come from me directly. It's just a piece that uh, Leanne asked us to create something for, and we felt really compelled by the work and the lyric and the poetry and, of course, the cello by Chris Dirksen who's an amazing uh, Cree musician. And I think it, yeah, it was, I wanted to really play with this kind of almost warehousey thing with these hanging canoes, which is, I guess, symbolic for museums or colonial spaces that tend to capture and steal our items and ceremonial pieces and objects and, contain them in these spaces and so in a way it's like Quay who is the woman with the help of Akuense who's the elder is going there to smudge them and like treat them the way they need to be treated and submerge them in water and essentially steal a canoe from a space like that Uh, so I think there's different elements of semi-literalness in terms of the canoe itself but mostly symbolic of you know, taking back our items from a space like that. And I think that's what the piece is about is them hanging and them being captured like that. You're not caring for them the way they need to be. And in the case of a canoe, it needs to be with the water. It needs to have certain care that is, doesn't happen in these spaces when they're taken. You mentioned collaborating with Leanne Simpson quite a bit, and I'm curious about how this relationship got started. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, before the films, Leanne was writing um, The Gift is in the Making, one of her earlier short compilations, and I was asked to do the illustrations. So I did the illustrations for that book and enjoyed it, had a lot of fun. And then later, Leanne reached out to me about how to steal a canoe. And that was a very, very, very small budget thing. 
uh, where we had barely any money. And at that time, we were making things out of my apartment. So I didn't have a studio yet. So it was kind of really sketchy and low budget apartment stuff. And I just, again, felt that song and that track is just like so just pierces through you. And it's such a beautiful piece, both with the lyric and, and instrumentation. And I just couldn't say no, like no matter how much money we had. And um, I guess just put our heart and soul into it and it's very rough in my mind like when I did it I was like oh man like not embarrassed but like we didn't have a lot of time or resources or money to make it but we still put our heart and soul into that and I always felt like in my mind like oh I wish I had like money or like could could like put more time into something for Leanne like I always there was like something that kind of was bothering me but it's funny because Leanne the really cool thing about our, I guess, collaboration and relationship is Leanne takes the works and uses them as a tool in her lecturing. Um, so I think that's a really exciting element that we share them as a film and she shares them with her literature and her lectures and and uses them as a teaching tool and breaks them down in those ways. And so, yeah, I always kind of was like, and one day I just like called Leanne and I was like, Leanne, like, I really want to make something with you where we have like a proper budget and like a film, you know, like, but in her mind, like how to steal a canoe, she's like, it's worth like a million dollars and people cry when they see it. Like to her, it already was like mind blowing. And I'm like, but you haven't even, you don't even know what we can do. Like it was this funny thing where, you know, she's like, this is so amazing. And in my mind, I'm like, yes, but not really. And like, I really want to see where we can really go if we had more resources and time and stuff. So I did eventually approach her about like, you know, what, if we were to make a film, like, what would it be? And, and that's sort of where the seed of the first seed was this poem called Ghost Caribou and Untold Stories. And that's the bookend of Badabin. So if you, she has a track called Ghost Caribou and Untold Stories, and we split that poem in half, and that's the start and the end of Badabin. And we talked a lot about, does this film need narration? Does Should we have people talking in this film? And both of us decided no. Like, we loved the poem, and even though, like, the story of Badabin goes way beyond the Ghost Caribou spark or poem, we felt that poem was enough and it's not it wasn't meant to be a didactic piece of of like literal dialogue and like oh this is what we're doing right now and this is what they're doing and we felt that would really take away and I'm sure there's people who would prefer to have a little more to work with but I, I love the way Leanne has mentioned before that to her when she sees Badabin it's like ceremony where you have to do work you don't just get all the answers or we're not just going to tell you straight up what it is. It You have to do work yourself to to find something in that work. And I, I really appreciate that, actually, because it's a lot of work to make those things. Um, so that that's sort of how our collaboration has evolved. And we're currently working on a feature film together, which I'm beyond excited about. So Leanne just released uh, her first novella called Nupaming, The Cure for White Ladies. And um, it, I'm pretty sure it's like sold out everywhere right now. It just came out in September. But yeah, it's her first novella. And we will be developing that into a feature film, which will probably be done in about 20 years. <laughs> wow. 
Well, it sounds like you have a really, really great working relationship. And it's amazing to hear how she's also taking the films into different spaces and sharing them in different ways. And it's very exciting to have them at Two Rivers Gallery on Slate Mutiny territory, also known as Prince George. Um, before we wrap up this conversation, could you share with us what your hope is for the work that you do with regards to decolonization, indigenization, and cultural revitalization? Yeah, I think, it. I mean, for me, it's not to say what the work can or should do for anyone. Um, I think, you know, my hope is that it speaks to people in a way, but I, I would never want to dictate, I guess, what that means or how. And I think that's why we create the work in the way that we do is that, it can speak to people in different ways. It's not always super literal or handheld in terms of accessing the work. And that in a way excites me and it's on purpose. And it, it to, to me, what is exciting is that I have a lot of different people speaking on how the work speaks to them. And it's all very different in terms of how it impacts one person to the next. And that, that really warms my heart. Like, and I think, Again, if I'm in a room and there's, you know, 50 people or whatever, and even if just one person walks out of there feeling inspired, whether that's just they want to make art or whether that helps them with culture, it's like that's what means the world to me. And, and those moments where a person will walk up to me and tell me how much it meant to them, regardless what area in their life it meant something to them. In. And, and that's, again, one of those holding moments that I – share with my studio immediately of like, this is the, w the way the work impacted people. And, and that's the, a big part of why I don't give up the work, even if it's just one person that you can kind of speak to in some way. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't feel like I have all the knowledge or all the answers to anything by any means. And these are just little glimpses of something and hopefully they can help someone in, in, in any way in their life. And I think, of course, like, it's exciting for me if it inspires people to want to create their own stories or, or, or work in the arts. Um, that's a huge one for me is inspiring people to find the outlet that works for them because that saved my life. And that um, is it's why I'm here. And I think it's such a powerful tool to use arts to speak and to have a voice and to tell stories and to share with people and to work with people. Um, it's such an amazing thing and nobody can take that away from you. I think that's a, a beautiful answer that you've provided. I know that a, a big part of also what you do is creating space for other Indigenous queer people to engage in the arts and learn from the arts and, you know, create what could be called a domino effect, which I think is beautiful within the work of things like decolonization and cultural revitalization and indigenization. Mm, thank you. Hi, hi. So thanks so much, Amanda. It really was a pleasure speaking with you. And I really enjoyed being part of the installation team, getting the exhibition ready for the gallery. You saved the exhibition, Megan. You really saved the exhibition. <laughs> you did it amazing. And I appreciate you dealing with my challenging lighting requests. <laughs> oh, no, it was definitely the right call. And for those of you who are going to get the chance to see the exhibition in person, just, yeah, pay extra attention to the lighting. Amanda is a pro when it comes to knowing what the work needs. And thanks to her, we really, we really pulled it off.
And how are you both for allowing me to be a part of this beautiful process? It's it's really been amazing. Hawa. And thank you everyone for having me once again and for this wonderful discussion. Hi hi. Tracing Lines is produced by Two Rivers Gallery. Intro and outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. And the multi-talented, dedicated artist we interviewed today is Amanda Strong. To learn more about Amanda and her work, be sure to visit her website, which is linked in our show notes. Her exhibition, Escochesa, Little Fires, is on exhibit at Two Rivers Gallery from October 23rd, 2020 to January 3rd, 2021. If you're in the area, be sure to check it out. To keep tabs on Two Rivers Gallery, our exhibitions and programs, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Be sure to subscribe to Tracing Lines to hear more interviews with the artists we work with. Tracing Lines is available anywhere you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Hope you tune in again next time.